this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Claude Terray, who is the co-founder of a company called Nexology, which was recently acquired by Datametrics for $5.75 million. As you listen to the Claude story, I think you'll find a couple of things really interesting. I found, in particular, his experience trying to raise venture capital money pretty unique and and worth thinking about. Uh, I also found it interesting when he talked in the interview about how to evaluate life after the acquisition, the way he tried to size up his potential bosses at his new acquisition at the company that he was agreeing to be acquired by. He also talked about some of the issues that come up that can often derail an acquisition. They're worth listening to. And then at the end of the interview, you're going to hear about this thing Tehari calls the devil that is going to take 12%. And I think that's really a fascinating kind of way to think about uh, the time between assigning a letter of intent and a share purchase agreement. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Claude Terray. Claude Terray, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about, yeah, tell me about Nexology and Veronica. What did you guys do? We, uh, when we got started, uh, big data wasn't even a term. So <laughs> we were doing big data and uh, the cusp of AI back in uh, 2010. We even started the company in 26. And back then, I think it was just called data mining. So we applied uh, data mining concepts and, uh, to social media. And specifically, one specific problem, which is kind of like finding the needle in the haystack. So... Uh, it's really, you know, uh, it's quite easy to see what's trending on social. Uh, Facebook now does that for free, so does Twitter. Uh, and we, we developed some pretty nifty algorithms that were able to sift through the data and find things that were significant, but usually uh, too small to be seen. And we used so to the, surface those so, and so, automatically without humans. Okay, so distilling it down... If I'm an organization, like a government, if I'm a company, um, and I want to know what people are saying about me on social media, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, I might hire your company to do that for me. Is that right? Yeah. I think you would hire us specifically if you want to see farther off in the future and if you, you really want to, uh, to hedge risk. I think one of the best cases we can talk about is PetroCanada. Um, you know, PetroCanada was like really involved in the tar sands uh, in when you're doing that kind of like really, you know, it's the tar sands is like the biggest industrial project ever undertaken by mankind. So it was like people who are concerned with this way beyond, um, you know, the local area. And so for Petro Canada, we were able to find new sources of risk that they hadn't necessarily anticipated. 
and we work directly with their uh, their CFO. So it's kind of like we're we're at the conjunction of that. So if you just want to find out what's what's good and what's bad, you really don't need us. That would be like using an elephant gun to shut the to hunt a pigeon. So with regards to these the Petro Canada example, what specifically were they trying? They were trying to forecast the future potential. Uh, you know, potential bad buzz, bad PR that might might start surfacing? Well, it would affect the share price. So Petro Canada, really specifically, they were in the middle of a hostile takeover by Suncor. So they got acquired, but they didn't want to be acquired. And so the CFO of Petro Canada hired us to make sure there was nothing that could sink the share price during this process. And, uh, you know, they had to analyze, in this case, like tens of thousands of social media posts, and they had less than two weeks. So uh, we, they hired us, and you know the software did a lot of this automatically, and so we were able to find two sources of risk that were very, um, you know, would have played a big role, and they were able to successfully mitigate those risks because they found out early enough. What was the business model for the company? I mean, were you a consulting shop where you, you charged by the project, or how, how did you charge for your services? Yeah, so we were, we were a software development firm, but with what happens is that I think when you're doing bleeding edge technology, there's a really good, uh, you always have to offer services as well. So I think there's a really, I, I read one blog written by, uh, oh my God, I forgot his name, but he, the blog is called Both Sides of the Table. It's a VC who is, uh, who is a three-time entrepreneur before he became a VC. And he, he he's, I think, probably one of the wisest um, VCs in the U.S. Like he, he debunks a lot of the standard VC uh, startup myths. And this is one of the things that we offered from the get-go. And I think it played a role in why we're acquired. Like I, I, what's really like new technology is very interesting, but sometimes if it's too new and there's nobody inside the organization who knows the skill set to operate that technology or to work with the insights, then the technology companies have to offer, uh, you know, different value-added services. Certainly, training. So one of the things that I found is that the success or not of a software license was often, often really dependent upon the human onboarding. And then, much more importantly, afterwards is, you know, inside the organization that's using the software, have they allotted for uh, enough time and people? to use the software and after that if they find certainly when you what we do is really heavily insights based so you might have want to use Nixology instead of doing the focus group right uh, or instead of doing polling uh, and but if you have in the same way if you do focus groups and polls but there's nobody inside the organization to act on those focus groups and polls then uh, those will be useless they, 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 they won't happen so what we found later on was that we had to do a lot more services than just you know dumping a software license with tons of data on people. What was the proportion of services revenue to software licenses revenue at the time uh, of acquisition? That varies back and forth. We we obviously um, uh, as as it was very high in the beginning because. There's certainly, we started doing big data before there was anything like a data scientist. So uh, we had to do a lot of the services there. And then as we got closer to the acquisition last year, uh, software became bigger and bigger because 
mostly the job of data scientists was starting to be defined and some brands, some government agencies were starting to hire their own. And I think the other thing is we also honed our sales strategy to uh, find organizations that were ready. Um, we have uh, something called the, I'm sure you guys have used the BANT score, B-A-N-T. Yeah, but you can go ahead and define it. Yeah. So it's budget, authority, need, and time. And so we, you know, we were basically scoring our leads with BANT score. And we had to add another one because, because when things are brand new, like even so, when we started in 2006, social media was brand new, but let alone big, big data. So we had to put in education. So we, we used to have sometimes people who had a perfect band score, but they need so much education about what social media was and what big data was that even if we worked with them, it probably wouldn't have been successful. Got it. So when you go back to my question around proportion of software revenue to services revenue at the time of the acquisition, I mean, would software have been more than half? Oh, yeah. yeah. Got it. Towards okay. the end. And at the, I think the blog you're referencing earlier, both sides of the table, was Mark Suster. Is that the guy? Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, That's exactly. Okay. Yes. We're checking out. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So, how? I mean, tell me about the evolution of this business. I mean, what what was your revenue? How big did you get the company by the time you decided to sell it? Um, we got to 1.7 million in revenue, and. Uh, then we had, uh, and back then I was still trying to raise money and I didn't quite realize there was a few things that, you know, um, I think we had the potential in some ways to grow to a big company many years ago. Um, but I feel that, let's just say in Canada versus the US is a very different attitude towards investing in startups. I think in Canada, um, Canadian, Canadian VCs at the time were much more conservative. They wanted you to maybe do a version of something that was already done in the US, um, or at least have a model that was, more, um, that was more proven. And so we had a lot of US VCs reaching out to us <laughs> uh, when Canadian VCs were saying no, but at that time, the, the US VCs just wrote much larger checks, right? So uh, there was a dilution issue that popped up on the cap table every time. So we were on that cusp of raising and not raising. Of course, that's a really hard position to be in because um, you know, you, you, when you have to grow a company through bootstrapping and organic growth, it's not the same corporate strategy as growing on user growth. So um, and I, did, I decided to sell when I realized, when I, I kind of went, okay, you know what? I don't think we're going to be able to raise VC funding, no matter how innovative and how interesting what we're doing is. And the reasons for that were, 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 uh, were, were plenty. There's a lot of different reasons why. But one of the main reasons why was that we weren't in a business that was uh, easily expandable. Like VCs like to invest in something where the model is clear and you just put in more money and more, more clients come in using like a freemium model or something like that. Whereas what, because we needed added services every time. And for instance, if you look at Palantir, well, Palantir is mostly services. I don't know so, what Palantir is. What, what's Palantir? Uh, Palantir is Peter Thiel's, uh, you know, machine learning AI company. It's, it raised 2.85 billion. And most of their revenues is services. 
but so in the U.S., you know, uh, in the U.S., that kind of company can get can get funded, but in Canada through a VC. But in Canada, I think the, the at the time that wasn't just that wasn't in the card. So the VCs uh, were looking at you and saying, it, you know, it's it, you know, we don't know how to we don't know how to value this. It's got part it's part technology, part service company, and, and they just weren't were, they weren't willing to write a check. Canadian VCs. If you there's a really good blog post on Mark uh, Mark Suster's blog about him being a VC in LA, saying he would not invest in a B two B SaaS startup if it didn't have to. So why not just take the money from the U.S. VCs? Well, at the time we we didn't have enough revenues; we're too small, and the majority of U.S. VCs who contacted us had two conditions: move to the U.S. And at the time, I had a family and I couldn't really do it. Uh, which is one, like, okay, move to the Valley, move to Austin. Uh, and the second one was um, the, the, the check size was too small. It was too big, sorry. They, they only cut $5 million checks to start out. And we didn't need that much, and it would, it would have been too diluted at that point. What did you figure the business is worth like, when at, the, at the time? Well, I, I think that... Uh, we were when we were raising an initial round. Uh, let's say my initial what I wanted to raise was 1.6 million. I thought we were worth 10 to 15, and we hired independent evaluators that you know justified this. So one of the things that you know that that was also again Canadian VCs. It, it, it's very different today. Like I think if we'd start the same company today, it'd be a lot easier to raise. So, uh, certainly in Montreal now with all the AI explosion that's happening. I think one of the big mistakes we made is we're way too early to market. At what, what stage is, is this in the company's evolution when, when you're out there trying to raise money? Like what year is this? Uh, we raised an angel round of 600000 uh, in 2010, and then I went out in 2012, 2013, and we tried to raise a seed round. And that's when you hit the roadblock. Yeah, that's when we, we but I, I also had some, uh, one of the founders, uh, a CFO, just, you know, it turns out that he had, uh, you know, he, he ended up having uh, mental health issues. And I think some of the VCs spotted that as well. Like he was a very competent guy, but um, would just go up and down. And then the VCs also had, saw a problem with the team. So, you know, he left the company uh, about a year and a half later. Got it. So there, so there are a lot. I, I don't blame the VCs at all in Canada. I think that, given the context of where they were, and given how much services revenue we had, and the team not being quite perfect, and the product, uh, you know, being really ahead of the market, I think I'd take the same decision today if I were on their side. Hmm. But it did put you in a in a bit of a bind. I I, I read one of the articles out there on Nexology, you know, in preparing for this interview, and and it talked about a New Year's Eve. 2013, when things looked pretty dire. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I. Um, yeah, well, we we tried to raise, and obviously, when you're raising money, uh, you weren't quite uh, flush yet, um, and we the raise wasn't going well, so we were running out of cash, and so uh, you know, I have this like, I'm a, very few people in startup world bootstrap, but we, we were able to bootstrap to a successful exit. And certainly in this phase, in this world, the big data, the capital costs are pretty, pretty big. So uh, bootstrapping, I, I have like a bootstrapping um, uh, haiku <laughs> and it goes kind of like, 
Uh, revenue is vanity. Profit is vanity. Cash is reality. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I thought mine. I took it from another bootstrapping uh, startup. And, you know, the cash reality part was filling in there. And uh, we only had 11 employees. I think I had to get rid of three. And my wife was seeing me, like, really scratch my head in front of an Excel spreadsheet. And she, she loaned us the money. She goes, you know, like, okay, that's it. I'll take it all my pension fund. And this is like, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. And we were able to use that. And it was 40000 It was a tiny little amount of money. But we, we just needed shred loans. And uh, that unlocked. You know, three hundred fifty thousand more, and boom, we're off. Okay, so and before just for we people go further, who don't understand shred, yeah, go ahead. Yes, explain what a shred loan is and what shred is. So I think one of the things that you know, if you have a U.S. audience, uh, and it's even more so applies in Quebec. Uh, in the U.S., there's a, a, a level of funding before the angel round that people call the friends and family round. And certainly in Quebec, like Quebec was colonized, and not, you know, it's just two generations ago, it was a really poor province. Um, there was, there was friends and family, everybody was, everybody was living in poverty. So there was no friends and family. Um, and so, and in Canada, we have the same issue. There's not, uh, there's not these centers, I would say like New York, uh, maybe like LA, like San Francisco, where there's just so much wealth that a person could just go, yeah, my, my parents sent me 200,000 bucks to get the company going. And there's, that doesn't exist here. So, and it's, I think it's starting to exist maybe a little bit in Toronto. Uh, maybe a little bit of Vancouver. So what the Canadian government has done is that if you want to get a project started, but it has a technological, uh, technologically difficult uh, development part, the Canadian government will uh, lend you the, will uh, forward you the money a year after you've done the work. So then, because you need sometimes you're so broke that you need the money to actually execute the work. Once you got the federal approval. There's a whole you know ecosystem of people who lend you the money, and then you pay them back when you get the tax credit uh, about a year later. Got it. So your your wife floated you 40k, yeah. which which enabled you to get the shred application process started, and then the the shred claim came through, and that was enough to float. We had we already had the shred claim and everything done. We just needed the money beforehand, so the, we needed another shred loan. Keep going. So it got, yeah, she didn't take that much of a risk because all that money is guaranteed by the federal government. You just needed the timing to, uh, to bridge it. And then you had $350,000 in, in shred uh, money that came in, which gave you the money to, to kind of continue to bootstrap to the exit. Is that right? Yeah. And I think this is why, you know, and in Quebec, uh, Quebec doubles that money as opposed to the rest of Canada. Interesting. So one of the reasons that the, Startup ecosystem is exploding here now. Is that uh, I think after years and years and years of doubling that shred loan, it, there's enough of an ecosystem that got started now that you know people who exit can now start other companies and stuff like this. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Jeff, take us forward to the the time that you decided to to sell the business. So you mentioned earlier that that when you just failed to sort of raise that VC round that you thought it was time to potentially sell. What, why, why was that the trigger that, that made you want to sell? Well, it was, uh, it was the realization that we could keep growing this slowly, um, but that we'd probably get eclipsed by much bigger companies that are going faster. 
And so, so in a way I view it, like we sold the data metrics. I love the team. Um, I don't view, you know, I'm on the team for the next three years. Data metrics really sees the, uh, the growth potential. We're going to raise money in public markets to, to fund the vision. So in a way, it was, it was a way to sell to, keep, to really keep growing. And I'm still with the company. I'm going to be with the company for three years. We're, uh, Dynametrics is actively uh, acquiring other companies. So it's quite, you know, this is the way I saw this is that um, alone and, because, and because it's because we still have a lot of services revenue, we, we have a lot of government contracts that are big, but are, you know, 18-month sales cycles. Again, that's something that Canadian VCs will not fund. Uh, in the U.S., Palantir sells the government and they get funded. But you know, when you have when you come up to a VC and you say, "I have an 18-month sales cycle," most meetings end right away. <laughs> got it. Got it. So, talk us through your process. So, you decide that in order to continue to grow, you're going to need to you know look for an acquisition. Did did you hire an M and A professional? Did you take it to no. market yourself? Like, what was what was your process? Actually, we were really lucky. We used to get uh, people coming. We used to get an acquisition offer about every 18 months. So by the time the data metrics one came by, we'd already, you know, gone down. We had one from New York a year earlier for from a big, big uh, U.S. investment bank, and. Uh, you know, they would come down and sometimes I would have the time to entertain to see if they were real or not. And it became, they became frequent enough because when big data became a thing, we were doing it. We had the tech, we were leaders in the space. And what's really funny now is that, you know, in the acquisition, I ended up doing well because I didn't dilute myself uh, through any kind of VC rounds or no preferred shares in the company. So... And, you know, as opposed to a lot of companies in the big data world, which raise a lot of money and are still not profitable, uh, when those guys get exits, well, they're going to be really brutally uh, diluted with preferred shares and ratchets and stuff like that. So in a lot of ways, we were like a really good deal to anybody who wanted to acquire a big data slash AI company. And so this is why we used to get offers, but once every 18 months from various, you know, big um U.S. usually um, sometimes private equity firms, sometimes bigger companies that wanted to scoop us up. And so when that became kind of frequent, uh, I hired an M&A firm, and I actually put you know I put the, they're called Age IJW, they're one of Canada's best in my opinion. And we had a we had a combined retainer slash uh, percentage success fee model because. When these things would happen, I, I have a pretty complex financial model for the company. Uh, and, you know, I, when I came up with an evaluation, I could really back it up. Like some, some of the USVCs look at this model and actually wanted to hire me to do financial modeling. <laughs> so how did you value the company? Well, yeah, the financial model cost us uh, 10000 bucks. We, we did it with an outside firm and then we kept that. You put that financial model in front of somebody and they it was really hard to argue, uh, and I, I, I actually put all the, the parameters quite conservative. So I just say, hey, guys, knock yourself out. Like, go play with this. Try and like reduce the valuation. And most of the time, people came back to okay. It was very positive. Let's go quickly. So let's talk about the financial model itself. How did so you you had a hired a third party firm to do this model for you? Yeah, they were called Modelcom, and they're one of the best financial modeling firms in North America. They won like. 
several competitions on uh, on Wall Street, and they're a Montreal-based firm, and uh, they've since changed their model. But uh, we hired them, and it was really worthwhile. Got it. So Model.com is based in Montreal. It was. I don't think it exists anymore. Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to say we'll put a link in the show notes, but uh, apparently not. So uh, uh, tell me about – so they built this model, and what was it based on? Like what, what, what sort of – Well, I have the- I had a really not so good. I'm an astrophysicist by training, so I uh, I have a PhD in astrophysics. So I, you know, I'm pretty good with financial modeling, with like just modeling in general. So I had a really rough Excel one uh, that was rough around the edges. And I gave that to them, and they really built it out to include. Well, I guess uh, what I'm what I'm curious about is what is driving the model. So you've got customers out there who are paying you a mixture of services revenue and software revenue. So what are you modeling? Like, what is, what is this, what are the inputs in the spreadsheet? Oh my God. The inputs in the spreadsheet are the cost of eight, uh, Amazon, <laughs> uh, Amazon web services costs, employee costs with spread retention. Um, every square foot of, mo- uh, with every square foot of office space we needed as we expanded was included in the model. And then, you know, it was obviously cash in how much, what would we do if we had raised the round? Where would we spend that money? And then we have the conversion ratios because we have a free tool that 12,000 people signed up on. And the goal was to convert the free tool up to two other tools up to the, uh, the SaaS tool that we were selling at $1,500 a month. Got it. So and, those assumptions were baked into the tool. Oh, if yeah. we can move X number of these 12,000, then that's going to mean X number of amount of revenue. Yeah, and the X's were very small. We were at the end, we're converting one out of one out of two hundred. One out of every two hundred converting yeah. from the free to the to the paid. Got it. Okay, so you've got this financial model that apparently uh, looked quite positive. So, what was it? How did you? I mean, people who've never gone through an exit before, it, it may be curious for them, or, or they may be curious to know how do you take a financial model that obviously spits out a you know a very large successful company at the end in ten or fifteen years? How did you? How did you then place a value on that company in today's dollars terms? Well, the financial model had all our actual financials. So we kept updating the financials with our actual growth potential. So we doubled revenues, uh, I think, in, from 2000, 2014 to 2015. Okay, and so we doubled revenues that year. Things were working really well, and we said, "Hey, just keep going on this path." And but already, if you're doing big data and AI, the um, the multiple on revenue is just anywhere between times four to times ten. Just roughly speaking, on what happens on big data companies. So already, if you have pretty substantial revenues, you can justify uh, a pretty easy um, and good valuation. But then we hired IJW, and the guy's name is Ian Wooden. They have offices in Toronto, Hong Kong, somewhere in the Bahamas, and Montreal. And so we say, don't talk to me. Talk to my M and A guy, who's an expert evaluator. And as soon as it I gave it to, v, to IJW. Of course, they can drive up the valuation even more. So you were doing a million seven in revenue. So you figured it was worth something in the neighborhood of seven million four, bucks. Is that well, four point five to uh, seventeen? It's anywhere from a factor of four to ten. Right. So somewhere you were doing one point seven million in revenue. Yeah. 
Okay. So somewhere in that, so 1.7 times four would have been five. doing the math. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if not a little more, all the way up to sort of 17. So we yeah. had one a few years back where you drove up to 22 million. In New you York. had what? We had one offer that we drove up to 22 million in New York. Of course, and what it, it didn't what work it, out because it was a roll up. Uh, they were buying several companies, and one of the other companies they were buying in with it. But that I was with a, that was a, with a huge investment bank in New York, and it was very exciting, a lot of fun. And that's when IJW really shot. They they really shone, like they putting them in front and like not having the. If you, I, I find that one of the big things that really helps if you raise VC money, of course, the VCs act as your M and A people. So they help with the acquisition massively. They've done this, you know, that's what they do for a living. <laughs> so from, in my case, having a, an M&A firm help me not to sell the company, like to actively market it, it didn't have to. We just got people coming in every year, every year and a half. So uh, having that firm at my side to help me drive up the valuation, but also I get the focus on the company and growing in sales. Because one of the problems that happens when you're a small company and there's an acquisition bid or even raising money is that you're wasting your time raising money instead of growing the company. Yeah, no, for sure. And so IJW helped you immensely. So talk to us through that process. So they, you gave them the mandate to sell the business. You paid them a, a success fee plus a-, a Well, we didn't, a we didn't give them the mandate to sell. This is, I think, a, when we gave them the mandate to, to negotiate on our behalf, when we got offers to so they didn't have to really market it. Ah, interesting. Okay. So you got this inbound offer from data metrics. Is that right? Yeah. And we, we were getting inbound offers pretty well, like I said, from the day we started the company every 18 months. Got it. But, but this data metrics one was the one that ultimately was the winning bid. Did, did IJW, were they, were they able to solicit sort of competing bids to, to drive up the price that data metrics was willing to pay? No, we didn't have to. The IJW, uh, the, the, the fit with data metrics was really, uh, for me, was good because there's also obviously a post acquisition that you have to, you know, think about. And the post acquisition scenario with data metrics was something I found pretty exciting. So um, all we had to do, the IJW just completely really helped out in every step of selling your company after that. So you know they played a uh, they played a good role in helping us draft helping data data metrics draft of the LOI, and then the FTA, and then whatever kind of snag sometimes can happen in these kind of deals. Well, the M&A firm has dealt with it twenty times, whereas mm -hmm. I it was my first exit. So you know I, I view hiring an M&A firm certainly for incoming uh, acquisition offers like going to the doctor. Like they know a lot more about being sick or solving that than you know even though it's your own body does that make sense mm -hmm. it does like you may you may you know be in control of your body but you might not know that you have diabetes and that eating sweet things is going to kill you and that's why you go see a doctor or a car mechanic and you know I, I think i have this philosophy where i only hire people who are better than i am and so it was the same idea here like obviously this is my you know my, the first time I'm selling a company, so I'm going to hire somebody who's better. I am a student. Sure, sure. And so, Claude, 
Walk us through what those those kind of weeks were like when IGW is negotiating with data metrics. I mean, did they give you a sense of of, of what they would be willing to pay for your business? Um, how did you first become aware from IJW that of what they were willing to pay? Uh, these guys, uh, data metrics. Uh, the CEO of Andrew, Andrew Ryu, uh, very direct guy. That's why it was, I really liked it right away. The culture was fantastic. So we had a meeting, um, and then it happened very, very quickly. And that's where IJW, that's why I liked them, because they went with me. So it, they came over. Um, I didn't realize, but initially it was just going to be meet and greet, and boom, we had an LOI hit us really quickly. And then uh, the chemistry was right. IJW was there 100%. They have an in-house lawyer. And the story is fantastic because uh, the Dynametrics guys said, hey, like, I really like this. They canceled their flights back to Toronto. <laughs> we, went, uh, we went to, uh, I didn't want to do it around the employees. So we went to Hotel St. James. Uh, it's like a private, private club and uh, business club in, in Montreal. We rented a room, had it catered, and we, we blasted through the LOI in one evening. And that, I think yeah, that's yeah. where IJW is. Their worth is amazing because we can make things go quickly. I'm sorry, you did the you did them the LOI with data metrics in the room. You did it sort of collaboratively. The LOI data metrics came in with a second LOI uh, that afternoon, and then we just went point by point, like what will work, what will not work. And that's where what's really amazing is that you see the chemistry with the people who are acquiring you. Does that make sense? It does. Tell me more. Like in 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 that process. The guy who was acquiring us, Andrew and Jeff Stevens, uh, they were both there. And I, the more we dealt, uh, the more I saw, okay, I can work with these guys post-acquisition. And what were some of the issues that you were working through in, in that, uh, that St. James? Uh, 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 we won't talk about that. A lot of that's under NDA. <laughs> got it. Got it. But, uh, those, those, those are issues like, you know, um, Typical issues you have for an acquisition, like uh, what's a post-acquisition going to look like? Uh, employment agreement uh, of some of the key employees. My employment agreement with Atometrics post-acquisition. Uh, you know, debt consideration, that kind of stuff. Got it. Got it. Good. Okay. And and so, how did you feel ultimately about the value they were willing to pay for your business? I think it was fair. I think uh, I think this is again why IGW, why you have when you have an independent consultant on there, like they know what's going across the market at the time. Um, I think a lot of founders fall in love with their own companies and tend to think, tend to put a lot of emotion there that's not really logical. So I I I was happy. I wouldn't have done it if I wasn't. Yeah. And so we were we were profitable. We, it wasn't an issue where we were going under. We we, we posted a four hundred thousand dollar profit that year. We were growing. Uh, we were doing m much more software than revenue, so everything was pointing in the right direction. So I didn't really need. It wasn't like a lot of startups that are raising money because they have six months left in the bank account. Right. You had that position. So that, Well, yeah, it, it changes the dynamic completely. So, which is also why when we got acquisition offers, because I was forced to bootstrap, you know, I, it, when we got four acquisition offers, I was able to send people packing pretty quickly. Like, no thanks. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I was able to get the the public statement from Nexology around the um, uh, around the acquisition price. I think I think the public number was five point seven five. Is that is that what what they re, they kind of released publicly? Um, I think it was a twenty day average around the acquisition date. So when they started raising, the stock was lower, but uh, the actual stock price when they acquired us was much higher. I see. And of course, since they've, since they've acquired us, the stock price has done very well. Has been, has done well. Very well. It's almost, uh, it's a more than double. Got it. So, so when they acquired you, it was a mixture of, of shares in data metrics and some cash. Is that right? Yep. Roughly 50-50. 50-50. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. And how did you get comfortable with the idea of taking such a large proportion of your consideration in shares? Well, publicly traded companies. So shares in a private company are a completely different thing, right? <laughs> if, if you're being, if there's a share swap into another startup, good luck on getting an exit, right? You're back into this problem. So A, the fact that it's traded. And the second thing is that, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in what we're doing, and so I believe in the upside. Got it. And, and so you're kind of along for the ride with data metrics. You've got some shares with them, and and you'll uh, it help. We'll make them go up in value much more. Yeah. <laughs> and is there a hold factor? You've got to hold on to them then for a, a period oh, of yeah, time. Oh yeah, of course. There's like, and I, I'm a, I'm a director of Nexology. So I'm an insider and all that stuff. So I agreed to all that. That's fine. I'm fine with all that. Right. right. I'm in for the long run. Got it. Got it. Got it. What was the biggest thing you learned from the sale of your company? Like the thing that you didn't know going into it? Hmm. Um, I think, um, I think, you know, a guy called Andy Nolman. No, I don't know that name. So Andy Nolman founded, uh, he, he founded Just for Laughs, the English uh, festival. Mm, sure, yeah, okay. For Just for Rire, and he founded a company called Airborne. I think it got exited for $85 million. Mm. So Andy is kind of a friend, and um, he's a speaker, and I would say kind of like a mentor. We meet once or twice a year, and he's been through this before, and I have a few other mentors uh, that uh, I would solicit for help and advice. I think Andy said something that was really worthwhile. He said, uh, in any acquisition, okay, at the last minute, Andy says the devil is going to get his whatever percentage. <laughs> right? And so if, and it's as, as everything's happening in the very last minute, there's going to be a certain amount that you just got to go, okay, the lawyer fees are more expensive or whatever. Like something's going to happen where at the last minute, you're going to either like, kill the whole deal or just say, hey, that's okay. I, I, it's something you didn't see coming, an extra expense, an extra dilution, something, right? There's tons of these possible things that can happen that initially as a founder in your mind, you thought you're going to exit for this. And if you don't let that go, you can kill the entire deal. What would Andy's advice be as it relates to the percentage of the deal that the devil takes? Did he give you any sort of direction? I, yeah, he said twelve. I think you could. I can. 
the next guy you should interview should be Andy Nolman. I'm happy to set it up for you. That sounds but good. As you look up Andy Andy Nolman and the Devil, and he he so he he and I met for drinks and oysters, and he was working on this presentation, and he pitched it to me. We were talking about it as as uh, just before the Dynametric stuff was happening. Like every eighteen months, we had something happening with some kind of like this. So. He was telling me about this devil on the deal, and then boom, he gave a, I think he gave a talk at C2, or I don't know where it is, but look up Andy Nolman and the devil, and he has a complete talk and a blog post, I think, about it. So to be clear, your definition of the devil is, um, winning. Oh, it's, it's Andy. It's Andy. Sure, sure, Andy's <laughs> definition, which you've adopted, I think it's great, and we're gonna now adopt it, but uh, it, it, it's really referring to that as you get into the throes of the negotiation, Usually past the letter of intent, something's going to. Oh God! You're, it's usually past the SPA. Okay, so it's like maybe even on the close. It's usually in the closing schedule where you didn't realize. Holy shit! Wait a minute! Like, <laughs> I forgot I owed this person this money or something like that. You know, it's a, it's right there usually. Got it. You, the LOI. You know, it, when you write the LOI, everybody's kind of happy and. You're not. It's at the SPA where everybody's writing all the details. That, as a founder, you may have forgotten some stuff. And just so we're clear on acronyms, the SPA you're referring to is Share Purchase Agreement. Is that right? Correct. Okay. That's correct. Got it. Okay. So, so that's good advice. Uh, you know, we're always cautioning entrepreneurs listening to this show about retrading the the somewhat sometimes unethical behavior of acquirers who who sort of offer something in the LOI and then take it away in the share purchase agreement. But uh, but you're you're including retrading, but also other things. It sounds like that that may come up that in, in this devil. I would say for me, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, for me, it's really stuff that I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, I've got about that detail, maybe a loan or something, or, or like fees. It's you do you do as an as an entrepreneur, uh, you do a back of the envelope calculation uh, of the cap table, right? And sometimes it gets more complicated. You forget things, and so when when the actual you know um, dilution clauses all kick in and everything else, uh, you may get a nasty surprise. And if you want to fight that, you'll kill the deal. Good advice for sure to stay grounded at the LOI stage. Interestingly, how did how did the original angel investors that that put up the first six hundred thousand um, dollars? How did they get paid out? Cash and share. They're super happy. They take the same deal that you took, and and, and that they got cash well, and share. Well, like I said, it was all common share. I didn't raise a VC round, so there was no preferred shares. There's no ratchet. Everything was common share. Right, so so now that angel investor is a is a data metrics shareholder on some level. Correct. Yep. Interesting. Fascinating. I mean, Claude, did you buy yourself a trophy? Sometimes I love to hear about the trophies people buy themselves when they sell their companies. Uh, <laughs> any any fun trophy or, or reward that you offered yourself at the, uh, the time of the? Oh industry? my God, that's uh well we. Um... We did buy some stuff, but it's just funny. It's like I was raised, you know, uh, I'm a Franco-Ontarian. My parents were, I don't really need very much money to be happy. And uh, I didn't define kind of like myself as a person who likes a lot of money. I was like, the only thing I really wanted was a fridge that makes ice. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It turns out that when I came to buy it, the, the kind of the fridge we have, the, the place we have to put it, 
all the fridges that make ice are bigger than the ones <laughs> that I have now. So you still don't have, so I have a lot more work. <laughs> I have to, I don't, yeah, but I did. Here's one thing that I did do though, is that to thank my angel investors. And one of them is, uh, it's this company called Inverotic. They do polling in US sure. in, in Canada. And they were really amazing. They were truly, truly angels. They believed in us. They supported us when things were tough. Uh, I can't speak well enough of them. And the, one of the the founder of Inveronics is a fellow called Michael Adams, who's a you know just got uh, the Order of Canada. Sure, very famous guy. He's, yeah. he's written, yeah, he's he's often on TV, writes in Global Mail. Like he's been really amazing. So I bought him a present with. <laughs> I bought him a painting of uh, a neighborhood in Montreal. Nice. And I would say that's the first thing I've done with, uh, with the money. Love it. Love it. Well, Claude, I, uh, I appreciate it. What's the best way, if people want to reach out and say hi on social media, what's the best way to, to sort of find you and connect with you? Twitter. So, C-G-T-O-R-E-T, like my last name. You can put up my Twitter account there. Uh, also, if you hit up Nextology on Twitter, I, I'm usually 50-50 uh, on that. Claude Terry, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.